Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from cloudy and cool Portland, which is nice after 115 degrees. Yeah, 115 degrees. I think it was 46 Celsius for the rest of the world. It was, it was very hot. Also with us is Luke Diebold. Yeah. Hey, everyone. And it's freezing over here. <laughs> I'll trade. <Over> in Australia. <laughs> Anytime. All right. And special guest today is David. Welcome, David. Yeah, good to be here from Lagos, Nigeria. I don't know what the temperature says here, but I'm sure it's pretty, it's not cold. I'm very sure of that. The hardest part about the high temperatures we had in Portland, you know, 115, 117 degrees. As soon as it started to cool off, it was like 87, 88. I walked outside and was like, oh, this is cold. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I can imagine. It looks like it's 81 Fahrenheit in Lagos right now. But not what cold in Fahrenheit in, in Celsius? Because we use Celsius here. Yeah. 27 Celsius. Oh, okay. And thus ends the Views on You weekly weather report. <laughs> you should get music for that. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Anyway, David, could you introduce yourself for our audience so they know who you are? I'm David Atonda, a technical writer, front-end engineer, and all-run product guy. Basically, I love products a lot, so... And that's why I even started writing code in the first place. I wanted to build my own products that would, I don't know, raise billions of dollars <laughs> and solve problems. So yeah, I'm a product guy first, then engineering comes after. That's really cool. Like, I, I love to hear that because one of the things that got me into programming in the first place was having a vision of a product that I wanted to build. So it's really cool that, and, and I think one of the pros of having that mentality is it's very much, there's an idea, there's a goal in your head that you're kind of coding towards. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, exactly. So although it was really hard at the beginning because I wasn't a technical person and I wanted to be the product, right? So I had like so many roadblocks. I tried finding a technical co-founder, but that was pretty much unsuccessful. Yeah, then I said, okay, let me start learning how to code myself. It's been, it's been good to hear. My first or my second product, yeah, is going to have its pilot later this month. Yeah, oh. so I'm excited for that. What's that? Can you talk about it? Yeah, it's Upbox. That's the that name. So we don't have a landing page that is publicly accessible right now, but... Yeah, Upbox. So basically a logistics company for social commerce. Yeah, basically for social commerce. So it's like hyper local delivery, right? So the buyers get to get their item like really fast due to and it's also cheaper due to the fact that it's hyper local. So we have like different 
agents in different places that can deliver it to the final user or the final customer. So it's not having to go like from a central point all the way to them and that'll be like really expensive and all of that. So that's one thing we're covering. And my second thought of that, you can check that one. Let me drop it in the chat, kiwano.cash. Basically, we're just trying to enable payments payment anonymously. That's just it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I get to pay other people without them knowing who paid them. It's kind of a bit unconventional, but yeah. Very interesting. I really like that. Like like Luke was saying, I really like that approach of, of coming at it from a product perspective instead of just, I'm going to learn to code perspective. Both of Both of which are valid, but I think it helps with determining what you're going to learn that you already know what you want to build. Does that sound familiar with your your path into programming? Yeah, definitely. Then I had to build my own product. And obviously in the process, I ended up building other people's products for money, I guess. So yeah, <laughs> so it's part of the, the journey to get to the point that I can build my own product, right? It took a lot of patience, obviously, to get to this point. But yeah, it, I guess it's, it's worth it now. Definitely. What, how did you get involved with Vue? as you were trying to build your product, what, what led you into the Vue ecosystem? So, okay, I, I wrote my first line of code in 2018, 2018 December, right? So I started with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, right? Then I started with React, right? And React was, okay, so this is the thing, I wasn't really good in JavaScript and I jumped into React directly. So that was like, a really bad thing. I don't advise anybody to do that, <laughs> right? So I was mostly just frustrated. I tried to copy the tutorial, but I didn't really get why they were doing what they were doing, right? And I was just copying and pasting into my own code editor and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work and uh, so just really messy. But in 2019, no, I think 2020 or 2019, I can't remember right now. 2019 feels, like I think 20. 19, 2020 feels like a really long year now, thinking about it because of COVID and all of that, right? So, yeah, I got introduced to Vue through one of my friends. Like, he was using Vue, and I was like, okay, what is this? And like, it's way straightforward than React. And I was like, okay, let me start it. And three months into Vue, yeah, I started working with it, and it was really, really nice. With that when I go into Vue, and now I'm back into React, and like, okay, things are way more straightforward now, like experience and all of that. I'm like, okay, yeah. I think everybody should start with Vue, honestly. Like they really, especially with the fact that it is, you don't have to think about class function, class components or functional components or all of that stuff. You just have like a template and just like straight up, it looks like HTML from that point. So yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. That's one of my favorite things about Vue is that it looks a lot more like standard HTML, JavaScript, and CSS, especially compared to React. You're not mixing up the JSX inside of JavaScript. And it, it, it reads like, you would normally read a document. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's pretty much readable. Yeah. yeah I think everybody should start with it. You don't have to deal with the complexities of React at first. It could be overwhelming. Yeah. Do you find yourself, when, when you're working in React or when you were learning React, do you find yourself comparing the React API with how you would do that in Vue and sort of applying that knowledge one to the other? I, I don't know. Well, okay, so in terms of like, connecting data. I know we have like Redux and React and all of that. But like with Vue, it was, I think Vue was like way more straightforward. Even like with the store and having to look at actions, mutations, understanding all of that was pretty much just really easy. Because when I started learning React, I don't think there were hooks. I'm not really sure. 
think we have to do all that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure right now. But like with Vue, so just pretty much, like I said, like a transition from HTML, CSS, JavaScript, the plain old stuff. I'm moving into like a framework like Vue or just like really smooth. Like that was like really, really straightforward and made a lot of sense. Oh, that's awesome. To go through that um, route. Yeah. Well, cool. And in addition to the products you're working on, you've also been writing a number of blog posts as you go to to talk about some of the things that you've been learning. Do you mind talking a bit about that? Yeah, I wrote my first article in, I think, February or January last year. So I believe in... Okay, so let, let me start from the beginning, right? So I think when people start learning how to code and they have to like go through tutorials, whether written, whether videos and all of that stuff, they get into the tutorial loop whereby they don't get every time they need to do something they have to like tutorial on it and it could just really get draining and I've been there to understand how how that is right so I just feel like anytime I learn something in fact, most of my articles if you look at them are mostly tutorial inclined I think a lot of them not all but like a lot mostly tutorial inclined than just talking about the particular concepts so I feel once I, I built something, I would want to write about it. So like, and that person and that part of the world say, okay, yeah, he built something. So they'll get inspired to like build something. And even when they read the tutorial, they're just like, okay, they can implement it in a different way on their end. So basically just to encourage people to like get out of the tutorial loop and just build stuff. And that's one of the reasons behind the WhatsApp stuff I built. But they're like, okay, let me just build this thing. I think it's a little more complex than other stuff I've written about. And okay, maybe somebody will see this and like, okay, they, they go into the code base on GitHub and, you know, find their way around it and just mess around with it. So, yeah, I'm really big on people escaping tutorial hell, all of that. It's like, it could, be, it could be a lot. And they might not really experience progress the way they would want it to be. So, yeah, go out and build, I guess, start a campaign, something like that. As a former member of the tutorial hell club. I definitely appreciate this perspective. And and I really like this idea of, of, of writing blog posts as you go and you, you learn something, you build something, and then you write about it so that you can help others who come from the same direction or are experiencing the same kinds of problems. I really like that approach. Yeah. I feel everybody should, you know, talk about stuff. And I feel like most really successful people document their lives and stuff they've done. So yeah, why not? Yeah, on a on another show, I got to talk with uh, Sean Wang, who goes by Swix on Twitter, and he has a number of talks and posts and stuff about this concept of learning in public. And one of the points he makes is that as as you're learning, you should be leaving this whole trail of content behind you, just as record for yourself, if no one else, to of everything that you have learned and everything you have achieved. And then in the future, when you're working on that kind of thing again, you can reference your notes, basically, which is in the form of a nice, well-documented blog post. Right. Uh, I, I find that extremely helpful with my own writing. I would imagine it's the same for you. Yeah, sure. Like you have, like you I look back and I check all my blog posts. I'm like, okay. There was a time I Googled something and I saw my blog. I think I Googled something about Axios. I was having an issue with it. And my blog posts were like the first night. So I'm like, oh, that's so nice. I guess I write for myself again. So yeah, I feel it's really, really nice to blog about the stuff you do and it's it's really helpful to other people. So I also blog about product, but that's like a different thing completely. Yeah, yeah. I've never found a, a blog post of something that I've built searching for a solution, but I've seen Lindsay's blog post pop up like two or three times now when I've been Googling stuff. And I'm like, I gotta do more content. Lindsay's all over right. the web. 
<laughs> it's like she's popping up all over the place and I can't even find my own. So anyway. <laughs> Plus, I've been really digging into developer advocacy lately. And it seems really, really nice. Too. It's pretty much the same thing like teaching and although in a different way, I guess like teaching and marketing together or some sort. But yeah. I also be like looking into like developer advocacy and all of that stuff. Seems pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's a that's a field that is very interesting to me, especially through the podcast. Getting to talk to a lot of different uh, developer advocates, it's kind of it's interesting to just see that other perspective on the developer ecosystem. Not just I want to build a thing, but I want to help others build things. I think it's really helpful to to take that mindset, even even as a developer. I'm not specifically advocating for anything, but. I'm able to better write my own code and I'm better able to explain what's going on so that other developers can get up to speed with it. Yeah. And teaching is pretty difficult because when you build, you build like a project, for instance, or something like that, having to explain to somebody else, you'll find out that you probably didn't know this thing so well because they're like hidden things that you need to explain to the other person. Then you have to go research it yourself so you can write properly and all of that. So... It could be really tricky, but like, yeah, it improves your it improves your understanding of of the problem in the first place. So I want to talk about one of your blog posts in particular, but before we get there, uh, because because you said you were somebody so focused on product, I'm I'm curious what your method is for coming up with a product and then deciding which ones you're actually going to pursue and which ones you're going to build. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? So growing up, I read a lot of things about. So when I read that kid, they didn't know how cool things that children do, right? I was really love like things of economics, politics. So they're like three intersections, right? There's products, there's economy, and there's politics. So you need to find something that fits into these three based on the ecosystem that you're um, targeting. So if you're looking at, okay, let me think, Calendarly or a, I'm thinking of like productivity tools, like maybe Slack, you are basically not really affected by these things because you are building for the world. So anybody around the world can use Canadadi, anybody around the world can use Slack right now, right? It could be in Brazil, it could be in Nigeria, it could be in the US. Basically, you're not really affected, right? But if you're building something like Uber and you're staying from a particular location, you need to understand how things work in that location, the economics of that location, what you put buying power, Things like that, basically, or you're building like an e-commerce store for like grocery or something. You need to understand how that works locally in that particular place, right? And and that affects how you build your product. You can't just build like a, a product that is not needed. Because I feel like there are two types of products. So they're like the painkiller and the vitamin C. So like painkiller, like a product that is super critical, right? Like Azum Logistics. Like let's think of a Glovo or something like that. Or Uber Eats, right? So like logistics, like completely critical. I consider those ones like painkillers, or you think about a payment platform or a digital bank, right? They're very, very critical. And there are those that are like vitamin C, which are not necessarily critical, but they are also good. So thinking about your paying customer and all of that, it's that like very, very big um, thing for me. Especially when you're living in a country like Nigeria, where like it's not very, very rich. So you need to know like, okay, this is what is absolutely critical in this kind of place or, or location, basically. Like if you're in the US, if you build anything, you probably like have like traction because there's a lot of like disposable income and all of that. So like it's not, so you need to like watch those kind of things. Like right now I'm using like productivity tools. So it's like, a, because I'm working on something like a job description generator. So like just have like a form, you have like specifications on the form on the kind of job you're looking for and 
a random description comes up every time you click the button generates. I don't even get that. Exactly. So that is basically just building for the world. I'm not necessarily building from my location, right? So that like productivity tool for HR. So they don't get put out like really ambiguous job description that might not fit what they're looking for. So like using like that had like different specifications and like based on where you're building for or like who you're building for. That's like very, very critical. I could go on and on. There's a lot of things, factors to look into, but <laughs> yeah, except you're able to go on, there's no problem. I think this is fascinating personally, especially since I, a lot of the developers I see on Twitter are trying to find what's something I can build. And the the first step is, is of course, coming up with the idea, but like, like you were saying, just figuring out the economics and the politics and all, all of the, the details around actually deploying something and actually making it valuable to an end user. That's, I, I think it's really cool that you put in all this time and attention into these things. Yeah, because I worked on like a lot of products. I'm like, okay, yeah, this didn't work. Okay, because of this reason. And I've just got to like have to understand all of that um, dynamics that comes with startups and challenges you get faced and all of that. But if you're a developer and like you're more engineering inclined than product inclined and you want to still build something, my best advice is build a productivity tool or build, just basically build a tool. You'll probably succeed more in that on that aspect than trying to build for like a B2C, like a user directly or something like that. Maybe like for maybe like for developers or a tool or something like that, you probably be more comfortable and you'd be pretty much comfortable because you're building like engineering stuff for engineers, right? Like a friend of mine, he just launched, I think he launched last year or last two years, PHP sandbox where you can like write PHP code and like run it right there in the browser. Something oh. like a cool pen, like specifically for PHP. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Well, like he's more engineering focused. So yeah, that really worked out for him like really, really well. That makes a lot of sense, especially yeah. since you're you're coming at it from a productivity tool or a developer tool. It's something that directly benefits you. And if it benefits yourself as a developer, there's a better chance of helping other developers and you already have a market in mind. And it's yeah, so exactly. Much more fun and than doing to another to do app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Exactly. And you have to worry about all the marketing and all the business side too much because basically you're building for developers, right? Right. And it's okay if your if your logo isn't as flashy as others because developers are used to command line. So your marketing so. is built in. Just just make it monospaced. Right. That's my view into how to build products. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's talk at this point about your blog post and we'll add a link to your page on CSS Tricks so everyone can see all your blog posts. But today we're wanting to focus specifically on tackling authentication with you using RESTful APIs. For me, this this topic is very interesting because it, it was one of the first things that I ran into as a developer. My first real project that I was working on was a node backend with a view front end. And I had to figure out, how am I going to authenticate in this thing? I had previously been working on a, on a, a prototype using PHP. So I was able to just use cookies and not worry about it because PHP is handling the whole thing for me. In air quotes, because it's not really handling everything. I'm still having to do stuff. But Coming into a single-page application, thinking about authentication and view, and then you've got JWTs and all of this stuff. So I think this is a really important topic for developers to to get a handle on and just kind of understand better. Yeah, I pretty much agree. 
like it's one of the most important things or literally the most basic things when you're building like a a web app that's not a to-do list, right? Yeah, it's pretty much important. Like after authentication, I think like using access pool data from, from an API, I think that's another really important thing. So like this are like really, really critical. Yeah. Although I I mean my grocery list is needs to be very secure personally. <laughs> <laughs> So, so let's talk about authentication. Would you mind just going over some of what you talked about in the blog post? We'll have a discussion about it. Okay, so I think I wrote two. Okay, yeah. The one you posted on from CSS Tricks. Yeah, okay. Let me open this. Basically, I just used... Okay, so I was working with Firebase, right? And Firebase has a way to abstract authentication with Vue or like with any other SAP, uh, SPA, rather, single page applications, right? Whereby they just have like the sign-up with email and password, like just have the abstracted in a way they don't use um, RESTful API, like straightforward. But I found out that you could actually use RESTful API with Firebase, right? And I just decided to try it out. So yeah, that's how it works. So it's just as if you're using like a custom backend and you have your own endpoints and all of that. Yeah. So instead of like working with the way Firebase does in a really abstracted way, you just get to get your hand dirty and do it we will actually do it in a real application using endpoints for your authentication. So what what is the process for for authenticating myself as as a user in a single page application? You, using your your blog as an example, what in in the code do I need to do to authenticate? Okay, so the first thing you need to do is obviously build out the UI, right? Once you have the interface and the form for signing the user up. Okay, yeah, signing up is like the first part. Then you collect the data from the user and you send it to your, let's say I use, I use Firebase here, right? So I send it to the backend, the user is registered. I can put it that way. Then they are, okay, so let me check the exact way I did it here. Okay, the user is registered and it's sent. Okay, so it has to be in an action. So I just have to think about this thing when I'm explaining this. It could be in an action or it could just be, in your component too, like as a method, but for explanation's sake, and just so we are all on the same page, yeah. If you make an action and you get a response after which you can use like the view router to push um, the user to the authentication page, authenticated page that you're trying to protect in the first place, right? So even the dashboard, like what we have for here, for instance, you get to have the user being routed to like the dashboard page. And the user, okay, let's be like a logout button too. So like when the user is authenticated already, you can like log out, then sign in. Basically sign in uses a different endpoint, obviously, but once the user has signed up, he automatically has all those things, his credentials stored. So he basically needs his email and his password. Then that cycle happens again with the user being sent to the authenticated page. Yeah, so like in a nutshell, that way it looks like just like an overview. So one of the things I noticed is in your article, we're we're getting that. I'm assuming it's a JWT coming back from Firebase, and then we're storing that in Vuex. The trying to phrase my question the right way, because the JWT is required to to then fetch data from Firebase. How would you add that to your API requests? Are you are you just fetching that as a getter and adding it to every API request? Or do you prefer setting it as like a an Axios base value? What's what's your preference? I think if I would win to write this article again, honestly, I would change 
some things, right? But yeah, exactly. I'll just see it in in my header, like in through my base, my base instance of Azure's, right? So I'll just save it there and from there, I'll just like like every request, it's in the header that has been sent to to the backend. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've I've done it both ways, either added the header on each API request or had it at the base as just a default header. I think both have have their value, especially if you're needing to request to multiple backends. I mean, in most mm. cases, I would hope that we're only having to deal with a single backend, but that's mm. not always true. We're, sometimes we're having to reference third-party APIs and it all has to go from the front end because we can only control so much as yeah, developers. I just, yeah, I just thought about that. You're, you're pretty correct. In case you're working with like multiple backend servers. Yeah, true. Yeah. So obviously with Firebase, we're having to store the JWT. If you're working in a backend that you have more control over, do you have a preference between using a JWT and a more standard cookie-based authentication? Hmm. Well, most of the time, they use like JWT, honestly. Anyway, since there's like a, when the, the JWT like, expires, whereby the user has to like log out and come back in, I feel like there's no protection for the user. So most times, I actually just use um, JWT. I know people might not like this, but like store in local storage and all of that. And it's actually it's arguable, but yeah, I use JWT like every time. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I personally believe, and maybe I'm going to get flamed for this, that if you're worrying about whether or not you store it in local storage or a cookie, then you're completely focused on the wrong thing. Exactly. And what's what's important is that you're protecting yourself from, um, what is it, XSS attacks? Yeah. So making sure that, that stuff can't get into your page in the first place, which, which view is pretty good at protecting you at. Oh, you're going straight to hell for that one. <laughs> now, I, I used to I used to be hardcore have to do things with cookies then I watched this video with somebody who actually showed me just how ridiculously easy it is and I can't remember the details I have to, I have to dig this video up so we can share it with people because I think it, it will enlighten a lot of people as to why cookie authentication is basically just as dangerous as local storage because you can create your own back granted it is harder to to steal a cookie because you have to like have your own backend that you use to steal that cookie. But yeah, anyway, I'm going straight to hell for that. We <laughs> <laughs> had several Twitter arguments on that. I've seen several, but yeah. So I'll, I will play devil's advocate for, for cookies because on the dark side, we have cookies. One of the, one of the big benefits I see to using cookies over JWTs is that you don't have to do this juggling of where do I put the token? Do I need to add it to the Axios header here? Do I add it there? Do I store it in local storage? Do I store it in session storage? Do I need to worry about refresh tokens as opposed to just the main token? With cookies, it's not completely a solved problem, but it is a much more, what's the right word? It's it's a simpler problem to solve. There was a an application I was working on with a Nuxt backend that I tied into Express, and I was able to use an Express cookie library to handle my authentication and authorization. So once the user was authenticated, I just passed a cookie over and the cookie was encrypted and it came over with every request. So in every async data function in my 
Nuxt pages, I had access to the cookie data because it was on the server. I didn't need to worry about translating this out of a JWT. It was just there. It was secure, at least it's secure enough, you know, as, as secure as a JWT is. And it was just passed back and forth. And I was able to handle all of the, the authentication details that I needed to without worrying about Axios, without worrying about where do I put this thing? It's just stored and it's built into the browsers and it's built into the HTTP system that we use today. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100% agree. This is the way um, Laravel Sanctum does it as well. And that kind of blew my mind the first time I just sent a request to get the CSRF token for those of you familiar with Sanctum. And then it just works from then on in. It, it really does feel pretty amazing using cookies. Yeah, I guess it's it's more the, the question of whether or not it's secure seems to be a bit of a, what do they call it? A bit of a red herring argument. But uh, yeah, I agree. Like I, there's so much funner to use, so much easier to use. Yeah, unless you're, I can't imagine why you would use two-way encryption decryption on a cookie. But unless you're doing something like that, cookies are no more secure than JWTs. It's just, how do you want to interact with this thing? How is the server written? One of the benefits of JWTs is that it can work for a single page application like Vue, and it can also work for microservices that need to interact with your API or other clients that don't have front ends or don't use cookies. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the huge benefits I see to JWTs over cookies. It's, it's just easier to work with as an, in a more broad sense. And, and so it just makes your application a little more flexible. So now, now I'm switching my devil's advocacy here. I don't, I don't know what side I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> if you're building like a fintech app or something like that, I know most of them like expire, like yeah, token expire like maybe in 15 minutes or something like that. I think that's also like the whole form of security, I guess. Yeah, that was going to say. Yeah, I, I know the, uh, especially once you get into refresh tokens and the uh, how long tokens should last, that then things start to get really complicated on the on the token side. But again, maybe it, it works better for your application. Where where do you land on this, Steve? Uh, in the middle. Yeah, fortunately, authentication isn't something that I've had to regenerate uh, from from scratch for any application. You know, with what I use at work, we're using Laravel and and Mongo, and so that handles quite a lot of it for me, which is nice. I have written you know demo apps from scratch from book where we use JWTs. And so I've, I'm a little foggy on on the workings, but I understand how you have all the different parts that make it very difficult to break them if you have if you have everything correctly set up on the server side. But I, I've heard problems with both things. I know the cookies from a server side, you know, the cookies just automatically sent in the header. So it makes it easier, easier for you. But you know, that's about it. Fortunately, like I said, I've been shielded from having to to delve too much into the authentication, although it is always interesting to to read the pros and cons of the various approaches. You heard it here first. Steve is working on JavaScript web cookies. Did I say? No. J- JWT, uh, JavaScript web tokens. No, 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 because you're in the middle. So, oh, so you're, gotcha. you're combining the oh, two. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh-huh. I am hungry too, so that could be part of the problem. But There you go. I'm thinking Lizzie, about did cookies. You, did you just do a Steve joke? I did a Steve joke. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I don't think... I'm proud of you. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that a cookie can be a JWT. I'm not sure there's anything stopping you from doing that. Yeah, because I think you can store whatever you need in a cookie, right? It's just a matter of exactly. you know, you have the you payload. You can go on, Steve. No, that's that's all I was going to say. What were you going to say, David? Exactly, like you store um, the JWT in a cookie. I was just emphasizing what he was saying. Okay, yeah, I've, I've used cookies in the past as plain text strings just to override for development environments. You can put anything in a cookie and you can interact with it in the... Uh, in the Chrome DevTools or Firefox DevTools, just just as you would with a 
local storage value. You can do everything. On a previous episode, it was episode 104, we had Vladimir Novik on, and he talked a bit about uh, authentication in GraphQL. And for that, he wrote an article about best practices of using JWTs in GraphQL. So if anyone's interested, I put blog, uh, I put links to his blog post from Hasura, as well as the link to that episode. So you can continue hearing more of this kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So David, you, you've mentioned a couple of times as we were talking about the blog post that you would change some things. If you were going to change one thing that we haven't talked about yet, in how you approach authentication, because this this article was written last year. So so you've mm-hmm. you've had some time as a developer. You've come to new ideas. If there was one thing you could change that we haven't yet talked about, what would that be? I think the way I implemented the hot guard, like the authentication guard, I think I could have done it better. Then I the way I do it now, I just have like like a meta property. I think yeah. Then I just have like the before before enter. I, I think I'm talking about the right syntax. Yeah. Whereby I just have like everything and it's pretty much different from the way I wrote it here. Yeah. I would probably do it in a different way. I think that is is one thing that I would that I would do differently. Except like go down to see um other things. Okay, so I think that's like one major thing I would do differently. Yeah. We so implemented the authentication cards for like the protected pages and do that aren't um protected would be different. Yeah. That makes sense. I feel like route guards in general are are this this very application specific thing that it's really hard to generalize because each application needs a different way to respond if if someone's trying to access an improper route that they shouldn't have access to. I've worked on one application where we decided to return 404s if if they weren't allowed to go to a particular page so they wouldn't keep trying and try to hack it. Where other applications it's just take you back to the login page because clearly you know something, but you're not supposed to be there right now. Right. I think uh, this is the first time hearing that, that about the 404 page. It's just getting confused there. Did you have the wrong URL, like the wrong thing? But yeah, I think I might just try that. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would recommend it for, for a general practice, but if yeah, it's something very, I don't know, security oriented, you don't, you really don't want the SEO on, on your admin dashboard, then I think it can be beneficial. Because if you're getting attacked and somebody's trying to get somewhere they shouldn't, returning a 404 is a nice way to make them think there's nothing there. Yeah. And there's this thing on most websites whereby when you log in and you can see the protected page, right? Then when you like use your browser to try to go back, like up, like to go back to like the previous page, like on your Chrome browser or whatever, you can still see the login page and try to log in again. I don't think, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Exactly. Well, like I worked on this app this year, whereby when you try to go back like that, you have to sign in again. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like for security and all of that. Mm-hmm. I could see that. That makes sense. So one one last thought I had on specifically what we're talking about right now with, with route guards. If we're using the Vue CLI and our, our application is compiled, we've got our admin dashboard in there. That means in the JavaScript somewhere in that, in that bundle, a user could technically get to our our dashboard page. Would I'm opening this question up for everybody. Have any of you used the dynamic import capability in the router to protect an admin page from being downloaded until it absolutely should be? This, this thought just occurred to me as we were talking because you can use dynamic import of a of a component so that it it's tree shakes it into a separate bundle or code splits into a separate bundle. We're not tree shaking that. And that that would 
hypothetically protect your JavaScript just a little bit more so that your your admin dashboard is not downloaded to the client until absolutely necessary. It's a little bit of security through obfuscation, but I'm curious if any of you have either done that or run into something like that. I've done dynamic importing with store modules and generating store modules and not with the router itself. Yeah, it's it's probably something worthwhile doing anyway because you might not want to bring in that code on the login page. Oh, maybe you would actually. Yeah, I guess it would depend on the application because if it's the kind of app where most people are going to be able to create an admin account or be able to access it, then there's probably not much of an issue fetching that code. But then if you're building something in-house and the majority of the world should not be accessing that application, then that's a really good point. You probably want to use something like, I think you're talking, are you talking about code splitting here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think I think it is a lot of security through obfuscation. If somebody really wanted to find that JavaScript, they could download it themselves. But I, I feel like it limits the bundle that's being downloaded in the first place, which is nice. But also they don't necessarily have access to all of that code that you've written for your admin panel, which could potentially help obfuscate some of your uh, backend APIs and admin routes or something. This is an interesting thought. Maybe you could set something up where if your login page, the data for, not the login page, sorry, like the data for the admin dashboard, as in the actual code itself. I wonder if you could make it so that perhaps every week when you compile your code, it changes the signature on that so that, you know, it's 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 constantly changing and it makes it sort of harder for somebody to kind of share the code for that or something. I don't know. I'm just kind of like speaking out loud here, but... That would be an interesting sort of extra layer of security for those that might, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of security through obscurity to an extent. Yeah. If anyone has an opinion on this, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. This this thought just occurred to me while we were talking, so I'd be happy to hear anyone's experience with that actually out in the wild. Yeah, let us know. I, I'm curious about this too. Awesome. David, do you have any other topics that you'd like to discuss before we wrap up? Okay, I think my, my first article was like really nice. Like I actually got like a lot of feedback with it although like it seems like it's a bit beginner friendly ish but yeah having to like pull um data from a google spreadsheet directly into your web application on the website or whatever using um tabletop.js not like really cool like when i wrote it like really cool so once you anything on um your google sheets it automatically updates on your website right so i don't know if you're being like landing pages or something like that that you I don't know, like maybe a non-technical person might need to like change um, what was written on the site. Sometimes maybe an HR person just needs to change something and they don't have to start going to the code and all of that. They could just change it directly from, from the Google Sheets. And it seems pretty cool, like a tiny really cool project. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I don't think I've heard of Tabletop.js before. I've used some other libraries similar to it, but not this one. Yeah, like a ton of JavaScript library like every day oh yeah <laughs> always a new one always a new one well great we'll make sure there's a link to the uh to that article as well this looks really cool uh, yeah can bring you on again for for another episode we can talk about that yeah we could it's a really interesting project yeah it looks like it awesome thank you so much david for coming on our show today this has been great yeah i'm happy to be here yeah it's my first time on the on the podcast so you're, yeah you're doing great <laughs> At this point, we're going to move into picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, 
figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Picks are the part of the show where we share things that we like with the community. They do not need to be programming related. And today we will start with Steve. What is your pick for us today, Steve? Wow, so much for saving the best for last, huh? Anyway. Start with uh, the best. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's like eating dessert for dinner. Yeah, there you go. So I actually have a couple of legitimate picks before I get to the high point of the podcast, the dad jokes or the Steve jokes, however you want to call them. So the cool module came out for those of us who have done nut static sites and, and love dealing with images. There's a new module called Next Image that allows you to put in one big image and then it will generate your various sizes for you. This is on, uh, I saw it on Netlify. On their blog, they have an article about it. And per their article, if you're using Netlify, you just plug in the module, put your images in your static site, and you use that. There's a next image component that you install and use within your, your own components. And then they handle the rest, apparently. And it looks like it also had, works with uh, Vercel uh, as a host. So I'll put the, uh, the blog post in the, uh, in the show notes. And then second, did any of you see this? Uh, this came out, I think it was over the weekend, this new AWS product called Infinidash. Yes, I did hear about Infinidash. Infinidash. I have spent more time reading and laughing about this than anything in a while. And this is this would have been a perfect April Fool's joke if he had done it right, but he didn't think about it till later. So that just as the there's an article that I read in the Register, a UK publication. And what happened was a guy named Joe Nash puts out, he's a developer educator, is the way he's listed in the article. And he's, all he says is, I'm convinced that a small and dedicated group of Twitter devs could tweet hot takes about a completely made up AWS product. I don't know, AWS Infinidash or something. And it would appear as a requirement on job specs within a week. And the community took that and ran with it. And it was so funny just looking at the follow-up. And if, if you really want to see a lot of stuff, just follow the Infinidash hashtag on Twitter. But the article goes on to quote a Signal app. Funny, we were talking about uh, a Signal clone here at the beginning. They put out a job posting looking for Infinidash experience and uh, our tweet. And it's in reference, sort of a joke to a well-known IBM tweet from a number of years ago where they wanted 12 years of experience for a technology that had only been out for five or six years at the time. Somebody had supposedly cloned this into something called Open. Oh, it was forked, excuse me, forked into OpenDash.io because they didn't like the licensed version. Somebody came up with an O'Reilly book cover. But some of the funniest things to me were a couple of videos that were put out. One was this guy named Forrest Brazil, B-R-A-Z-E-A-L, who did an Ode to Infinidash song. And he's playing it on the piano and singing. And then another person from, I think, Scottish, Cy Brand, goes by Tartan Lama, had a whole video explaining Infinidash using a bubble machine and a stuffed shark and cheese. And oh, it was just awesome. And he's talking about multiplexers for cryptography and oh, it's great. So anyway, if you follow the article and then look at the hashtag, you will 
sit back and laugh for, for quite a long time. It was awesome. It was so good. And then speaking hold on, of- hold on real, real quick before you get into the joke, that guy Forrest Brazil uh-huh. is amazing. I was at the end of this. If, I didn't realize he'd done a song for Infinidash yet, but uh, his ode to AWS in general is excellent. He does an entire song talking about the 168 services of AWS. Oh yeah, that's awesome. That was definitely uh, musically talented. Musically talented, shall yes. I say? Oh, it's so good. But uh, you know, obviously, the whole point of of what he's talking about is just that you know someone can put out a tweet about this whole great service and pretty soon it takes off like a wildfire and nobody knows what the heck it is. So it's great. There's a YouTube video and there were a couple of guys who are doing a whole intro about Infinidash and they're just totally beating around the bush and not talking what it's really out. There's even an awesome Infinidash GitHub repo and there's an installation guide that was great and it talks about having to put in your credit card number and then install it and hey, it solves all your problems. So really good. So question for the day, <clears throat> deep thoughts with Steve. Why is there overwhelmed and underwhelmed, but no whelmed? Never understood that one. And then, well, I'll just share this. Oh, here we go. So the other day I went to uh, get a car. Uh, well, not the other day. It's been a while since I bought a car. But the last time I went to get a vehicle, I was at a used car lot and the dealer was showing me the, the car. And he says, this car can comfortably fit six people without problems. And I told him, Dang, well, it's not going to work because I have me and my friends have lots of problems. So that car didn't work. I ended up getting a truck instead. But anyway, those are my picks for the days. That was a very whelming joke. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, what is your pick for us today? Yeah, uh, so I got a few. Recently, I've been focusing on social media and I try to stay away from social media as much as I can. And so it feels kind of weird because now I kind of need to use it to sort of work on sort of growing my channel. And so I've been looking at a few different technologies for doing things like um, scheduling posts and stuff like that. And I came across a few services, but the one I found that was really reasonably priced and seems to be working really nicely is Publa. So Publa.io. And it's basically a service where you can hook up your social media accounts. And if I release a new video, then I can basically say, hey, anyone who's interested in QuasarCast, they can know about that video on all the different platforms. So like it supports like Facebook, Facebook groups, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, even YouTube. So I found that really, really helpful. So if you're trying to grow your brand, uh, then definitely check out Publa. That's pretty cool. The other thing is related to today's um, today's podcast. It's a video from Academind about cross-site scripting attacks and local storage versus cookies. So this is the video that converted me to understanding why local storage basically is okay. He actually shows you how you can hack something with local storage and how you can hack it with cookies as well. Um, And it's really interesting because he shows you some of the stuff that Chrome is actually doing to prevent this stuff anyway. So that's a really interesting read. I definitely check that out. I'll send you the link so that you've got that one too. And then the other one is the WhatsApp clone built by David. David built a WhatsApp clone and we actually tried it before. um, Well, I tried it before this podcast and it's really cool. And he's got the code on GitHub. So you can go ahead and check that out. So if you want to know what the code actually looks like for cloning something like WhatsApp, then yeah, definitely go take a look at that. I thought it was really cool. And then my three picks. Excellent. Thank you. David, do you have any picks for us today? Okay, so I think earlier this week, YC, like Y Combinator, they introduced like a new, what I call a new feature, whereby I think under like their startup school, or I think it's now open to everybody. I'm not really sure. Okay, I, I think I've seen the blog where they announced it, where they, they have like this co-founder matching. So like you have 
an idea or something you're working on, I need a co-founder, right? You just sign up and yeah, you can find like a little a number of people that are also looking for co-founders. So people you can like connect and stuff. It seems they said it's working, like they had it work in with their startup school already. I think they are opening it out to the public or something like that. But yeah, I can just go through it. I, I saw the, the blog like past it there and I thought it was like a really cool thing for for them to do. So, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I have two picks today. First is an app that I recently learned about called Storygraph. It is a an app for tracking what you're reading, what you've read, and getting recommendations for things to read next and does some analysis on the kinds of books that you've read. So for example, it knows that I like thrillers and science fiction and fantasy because of the books I've been reading recently. So it's pretty nice. One of the big reasons I, I downloaded it to try it out is it was being talked about by, I think, Saranya Barak. And she noted, or they the, the company noted, and she shared the tweet, that the of the top five reading apps, three of them are owned by Amazon. And Storygraph is currently number five. So I, I felt interested in trying it out specifically to help push up this company and get some competition against Amazon and their control over reading that we have today. I didn't know that Amazon controlled Goodreads. I did not realize that. So that is one of my picks. The other is much more view-related. Nuxt has announced Nuxt Nation, which is supposed to be the largest Nuxt conference on the 15th of September this year. Their billing is joined 20,000 fellow Nuxt and Vue developers to learn everything Nuxt has to offer in 2021. They didn't specifically call it out, but I'm quite certain that it's going to include information on Nuxt 3. Based on our previous conversations with people from the Nuxt team, the Nuxt 3 public beta should be coming out any day now. Are you thinking about uh, Daniel Kelly? No, I'll, I'll find sure. it later. Yeah, we just, we've had Debbie O'Brien and Daniel Kelly. I see they're listed as a couple speakers. We've had them on the show here recently. Oh, yeah. and Maria Lamardo. We, we've had a large number of Nuxt people on. We should we should get more. Anyway, I, I've heard that Nuxt 3 public beta is supposed to be coming out soon. And as of recording, it is not yet out. We're at the beginning of July. So I would imagine that their, their conference is going to be talking all about Nuxt 3 and Nitro and the changes that are coming. And I'm very excited for it. And I think you all should attend. And the price is free, which is the best part. Is it uh, remote only? It is remote only at the moment. Uh, it looks like it's remote only. Speakers include Debbie O'Brien and Daniel Kelly and Sebastian Chopin and Josh Deltener. I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. So there's, it's going to be really cool because it's talking about Nuxt and it's got cool people. So highly recommend everyone check that out. You could say it's the next big thing. It is the next big thing. Yeah, I heard that groan. <laughs> David, where can people find you on social media or online if they want to continue this conversation? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter. That's, I think my handle is um, David Prenier. And it seems really, really... Okay, let me just type it out or let me just get a link. We'll, we'll get the link in. Yeah, exactly. So you're David Prenier on, on Twitter. And yeah, I think that major place you can find me on social media. I'm not really active on on Facebook or, I don't know, Instagram. Yeah, I, I tend to stick to Twitter for any any real interaction with people. So awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. You can find us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at wonder95. And you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebold. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.